Hey, good morning. Good morning, everybody. It's cold. Gets a little stiff. Yeah, it's good. Falls here. My name is Nate Wagner, one of the pastors here at Portico. Welcome. It's so good to see you all. I'm glad that you're here. We are continuing in Galatians this morning, and we get a real heavy dose of the book of Galatians in a very short segment of verses. And so this is going to be one of those um, parts of the book that is actually more important than some other parts of the book. And that sounds weird because it's all God's word, but all of God's word is not equally alike in its clarity and in its power. And so this morning, we are privileged to come to the part in Galatians where the gospel is made very clear, very powerful. And so I don't know if you're ready for that. (laughs) Did you wake up this morning thinking, this is what I really need? A verse that shows me the clarity and purity of the gospel. Well, probably not, because that's not normal. But (laughs) it is what you need. And we have it here. And so um, I want to say a couple of things before we read what passage we're going to be looking at this morning. Um, Because you can be in a church your whole life. You can go to a good gospel-preaching church for years and decades and decades and hear the gospel and understand the gospel And maybe at some point in your life you experience the power of the gospel, but that is a distant memory. And everything just kind of becomes wooden and rote, and you just start going through routine. And that happens. That happens. And God, in his goodness, doesn't leave us there. He pierces through the hardness of the years, and he meets us, and he makes the gospel come to life again. And so my hope is that that might happen. I don't know if anybody's in that spot, or if you're even aware that you might be in that spot. But what I want to say is that sometimes when you've been in a church for a long time, and that kind of happens you feel very awkward because it's kind of like you've just realized that you thought you had been speaking English for your entire life, but really you were speaking German. And you're like, what are my friends going to (laughs) think? This is humbling. This is embarrassing. How was I blind to this for so long? And so typically what we'll do is we'll just kind of like suppress it Or we'll just kind of like try and act like nothing's happening. Or might be overwhelmed for a period of time, but then be like, oh, okay, that was good, that was good. I'm just going to keep that inside. And I want to challenge you that if you experience God meeting you through this text, because he should, he will meet all of us, that you wouldn't be embarrassed, that you wouldn't be ashamed, because you're supposed to be way more mature, but that you would be grateful, that you would see it as God's grace, that he is calling you back into a fervent love for him. 
And so I want to tell you a story of an example of that. And this is an example of a friend, a really good friend, whose mom grew up in the church, grew up in the church from the beginning of her life, knew who Jesus was, believed in Jesus, knew all the right doctrines, came to church, met a godly man, had kids, did all the right things, raised the kids, sent the kids off. And then one day, gets a call from her grown daughter. And the grown daughter says, Hey, Mom, this is really hard for me to say, but your life doesn't match what you say you believe because you're kind of judgmental. And when you talk about other people, you kind of tear them down. And it makes me afraid to even share things with you because of how you're going to receive it. And I love you and I care about you, so I just wanted to let you know that. And in God's grace, the Lord used that. Because I know if I was in her position, (laughs) I would be thinking to myself, oh yeah, well I used to change your diapers. So who are you to tell me? Right? Like, my pride would have been irritated and provoked. But in God's grace, he used that to soften her. And maybe for the first time, but probably just again, she embraced the grace of God. And that completely transformed her relationship with her kids, her relationship with her neighbors, her relationship with her husband. And now she just tells everybody who will listen about that story. And one of the things that she said was that she realized that she had become self-righteous over time because she was actually living in fear She was living in fear that she didn't measure up. And so she understood that she wasn't perfect. And cognitively, she understood that Jesus came and died for us. But practically, she was still thinking that God's judgment was looming over her. And I don't know if you've ever had something really bad happen, or you've done something really bad, and maybe you even have gone into a courtroom as a defendant accused of something really bad. But the looming judgment cripples you. It creates all kinds of anxiety. And it provokes you to come up with some kind of defense. And so for her, her defense was kind of showing everybody else how good she was and comparing herself to other people to tear them down so that she felt better. And this is relevant to Galatians because this is exactly the dynamic that was going on in the churches in Galatians. And so we talked yesterday or last week, not yesterday, about what it looked like for Paul to confront Peter. And it was kind of this event in church history that demonstrated why the gospel is so important and how you can actually contradict the gospel with how you live. And 
this morning, we're going to look at kind of a recap of that. So we got the events and some of the details last week. This week, we're going to get, here's why this is so important. Here's why this is so important that Paul is kind of centering this for his entire letter that he's sending to the Galatians. So you can read this with me. We're going to be in Galatians 2, starting in verse 15, and we'll go all the way through verse 21. And so this is, again, this is kind of Paul's commentary, and it's almost as if he's imagining himself in a continued dialogue with Peter. It says, We ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by works of the law, no one will be justified. But if in our endeavor to be justified in Christ, we too were found to be sinners, is Christ then a servant of sin? Certainly not. For if I rebuild what I tore down, I prove myself to be a transgressor. For through the law, I died to the law, so that I might live to God. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. Please pray with me. Father, we are forgetful people. We hear your words, words of life, words of light, words that pierce through our pride and humble us, bring us to our knees. And yet, Lord, you meet us in that position of humility just at the moment where our guilt cripples us, you lift us up. You show us your son. God, I ask that we would see him clearly. That we would see the grace of your incarnate son as he lived for us, died for us, and rose again from the grave for us. Lord, we ask that your spirit would be here with us that it would help us believe again and continue to believe that we are not justified by what we do, but what Christ has done. And we are not sanctified in our own strength, but by your grace. And Lord, that you will perfect the work that you have started. So Lord, give us patience as we wait for it, as we long for it. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. So, embrace the grace of God. That's what this passage wants you to do. Embrace the grace of God. In order to see kind of how this passage, the logic of it, I broke it down into three different sections, and there's also themes that kind of weave themselves through those sections. So it's actually, you know, it's a little bit complex. So I'll first give you the sections, and then we'll talk about the themes that are in the sections. 
The first section is the need for the gospel in verses 15 through 17. So Paul spends these first couple verses kind of articulating the universal need for the gospel. And then in verses 18 and 19, he shows us the exclusivity of the gospel. Why you can't add anything to it. And then in verses 20 and 21, the power of the gospel. So we have the need for the gospel, exclusivity for the gospel, of the gospel, and the power of the gospel. The themes are life, death, and resurrection. Life, death, and resurrection. And so going back to that story for just a minute, I want to show you how these themes work out in real life. Life, death, and resurrection. So one of them, life, it's pretty self-explanatory. We're all alive. Hopefully you're alive here this morning. We're alive. We're living a life. And that life is lived before the face of God. And we all intuitively know this. But sometimes we suppress it. In our sin nature, we suppress it. We ignore God. We think that we live unto ourselves, for ourselves. But even if you're suppressing it, everyone has a rule of life. Everyone has a law that they live by. Everyone has something that lets them know if they're doing things the right way or the wrong way. It's just part of human nature. We all have a law of life. And so the law is used very specifically to refer to how God revealed his law to Israel. And the law required works. The law made requirements of Israel. And so when you hear works of the law, he's talking about how Israelites were supposed to live life in front of God. But not just, every, not just Israel has a law. We all have a law. We all have a law. And then there's death. Death happens when you break the law. When you don't live up to your expectations. When you disappoint yourself or someone that you love and care about. When you get corrected as a child. There's a knowledge of death that comes through breaking or failing to fulfill a law. And then we'll get to resurrection. But there's going to be a little cliffhanger there. Let's go ahead and start in this first section. The need for the gospel. Looking at verses 15 and 17. The need for the gospel. So Paul says, we ourselves are Jews by birth. So this is a statement of authority in some ways. He's saying, hey, Peter, me and you, we're Jews by birth. We aren't like the Gentile sinners. We have received God's law. That law has actually set us apart as a holy nation for God. And so we do things differently. And so he's kind of saying, yes, Peter, we're on the same page here. This is true. On the other hand, there's Gentile sinners. Now, to us, that sounds kind of rude, <laughs> kind of arrogant. Like, oh, you just drew a line in the sand and said, like, you're better than them. And yes, he did. And in many, many, many ways, yes, they were. 
This is something that we don't understand because of the time that we live in. But if you would go back into the ancient world, into the early Roman Empire, and see the practices of worship that were involved in the pantheon, how they sold people into sexual slavery. Why? For the pleasure of the gods. The society, the people that made up the ancient world are way more horrific than we can imagine today. And so that's something that we have to understand is that there was real tension here in this community because what was happening in these churches in Galatia is that you had Gentile sinners who had been worshiping in these pagan temples for their whole lives. And all of a sudden they heard the gospel, they believed, they were justified, and they started coming into the churches. And I can tell you from experience, when that happens, when you are living apart from God and then confess and believe and are truly regenerate, you're still kind of a mess. (laughs) And so it was messy in these churches because you had these young Gentile Christians who were confused. And God's grace works itself out in time It doesn't just happen all at once. And so Peter and some of the other leadership of these churches, they were getting really nervous. Like, whoa, this does not feel right. So let's go back to what we knew. Let's norm them to the old covenant. Let's help them understand the law so that they can actually be part of our community. And so what Peter had done, and he might not have even realized it, is he had negated the justification that comes by faith. Because he said to them, you're not living the right way, so you can't be part of us. And so Paul was upset by this. And so he reminds Peter by going to the Old Testament And saying, listen, Peter, even though we are Jews by birth, we too have believed in Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ. Because, Peter, remember, even though you followed the law, you denied Christ. And even though you received forgiveness after Christ was resurrected, you're still opposing the gospel through your life. And so you are just as much in need of being justified by faith in Christ as the Gentile sinners. And he reminds Peter also that this is how it was always supposed to be. This is going back to Genesis in God's relation with Abram, who became Abraham, said he lived by faith, not by faith his works. He related to God. He was in a good standing with God based on the promise that God had made to him and trusting that promise, not by his own ability to fulfill the law. And so Paul's showing the universal need for the gospel. 
Because if you live based on what you can do, this principle of law, this principle of works of the law, how the law makes a requirement of you and expects you to live up to them, if you fall even the slightest bit short, if your motivation is anything but pure, you are guilty and there is nothing that you can do. Why? Because God's standard is perfection. This goes back to something I talked about at the beginning of the series. We're talking about the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is the rule of God. God is perfect, holy, pure, and he desires that his kingdom is perfect and holy and pure. And so any imperfection that enters that kingdom threatens the entire purity of the kingdom. Because sin isn't just a little mistake, but it's alive. It's a power that enslaves, that infects, that spreads. And God's not going to allow his kingdom to be infected by sin. And so for everyone, universally, you have a need for something else because there is a judgment that's hanging over us all because we're not perfect. You can see this. I've seen it. Anybody who has kids, who has corrected a child, sees this very purely as that child is corrected. Right? They do something, they know they shouldn't do it, and then they receive the judgment of their parent in the form of a correction, and the face kind of falls. And they realize, oh, I'm not perfect. I've done something wrong. What does that mean for my relationship with my parent? What does that mean to my relationship in this family? And that's just an unvarnished, very transparent example of everything that we do as adults. We wonder at our imperfections, don't we? What does it mean that I failed in that way? What does it mean that I sinned in that way? And so there's a couple of ways that you can deal with this. You can deal, it through, deal with it through just kind of like suppressing it. And just, this is what I think a lot of people do. It's like, well, if I just get rid of God, if I get rid of who God is in his perfections, then I can have a little bit of peace because now I just dealt with the judgment. So that's one way that people often will deal with this. But the other way is the way that most people in the church deal with it. Is they're like, yeah, that was pretty bad. But that was a little bit bad. But I'm really good. I go to Bible study. I go to church all the time. I'm not as bad as that person. Oh, that person over there. Right? And so you start comparing yourself and all of a sudden, you're kind of like starting to prop yourself up on other people's failures. And this just kind of like eats away at the community. And in so many ways, this would have been what was happening in Galatia. Is you had these Greek and Roman and all different kinds of ethnicities, new Christians coming in, 
and you had this like established group of God worshipers of Israelites. They're like, hmm, we'll show them. We'll show them how to live. We know how to do this. And so they forgot their own death. They forgot the death that the law had brought to them and thought, yeah, we can, we can do this. We can help them please God by getting circumcised, by following the laws of the Mosaic Covenant. Let's do that. We'll teach them. So there's this incredible need for something to satisfy the desire of both, right? The, the new Christians, the, 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 the um, Gentile Christians, they would have known, I, we want to live in response to the gospel. So there's a need there, and then there's a need for the Jewish Christians to show them, oh yes, we can do this, right? But it didn't produce life. Only Jesus brings resurrection. That's how resurrection enters into this. There's life and death under the law, but there's no resurrection. And so this is why the gospel is exclusive, the exclusivity of the gospel in verses 18 and 19. And I will say, this section is very confusing. (laughs) So if you read it and you're like, I have no idea what he's talking about, yeah, that is because you read it correctly. The translation's a little bit wooden, and so it's difficult to understand exactly what he's talking about. I'll try to explain it in a way that makes sense. So if you look, this really starts in 17. But if in our endeavor to be justified in Christ, we too were found to be sinners, is Christ then a servant of sin? So what Paul is essentially saying here is like, hey, Peter, we have been justified in Christ, and remember, we still sin. So does that make Christ a slave to sin? He's basically drawing a parallel between him and Peter and these Gentile sinners who are justified by faith. And he's saying, it's the same principle. We still sin. We're justified in Christ. They still sin. They're justified in Christ. Is Christ a slave to sin? By no means. The logic is pretty soundproof. For if I rebuild what I tore down, I prove myself to be a transgressor. For through the law, I died to the law so that I might live to God. And so here's what he's saying. He's saying, Peter, what you're instructing these people to do is to rebuild this idea that the law has requirements of you that you must fulfill. And if you don't, you're in trouble. And if you don't, you don't really belong. And if you don't, God's judgment still stands over you. And Paul says, Peter, I'm not going back there. I am not going back there. Because I tore that down. That's how I lived before I met the risen Lord. I lived by what I could do. I lived by my pedigree. And it turned me into a proud, arrogant persecutor of the risen Lord. I am not going back there. In Philippians, Paul develops this. This would have been written after Galatians, and you could tell that it was still just bothering him. 
this idea that you should start living by the law in your relation to God. In Philippians 3, starting in verse 2, look out for the dogs, calls them dogs. So he's a little bit more mad at them at this point. Look out for the dogs, look out for the evildoers, look out for those who mutilate the flesh, talking about the circumcision party, saying that all these Gentiles needed to be circumcised in accordance with the Mosaic law. For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. In other words, in what they can do, how they can fulfill the law. Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh, also, if anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law of Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. And so you see, Paul got so excited and upset by this because he knew what the stakes were. He knew that what Peter was doing was basically holding onto a rope with this hand called works of the law and with this hand holding onto the gospel. And the ropes were being pulled in opposite directions. Because you can only have one type of righteousness. It's either what you can do or what Christ has done. And to do both is really to focus on what you can do. Because you can't hold on to both. It's like straddling a train that is split and moving in two different directions. You will make a choice. You'll have to jump at some point. And so for Paul, this is really two ways of relating to God. Self-righteousness, works of the law, and Christ's righteousness by faith. Self-righteousness by works of the law, it manifests eventually as pride in arrogance or boasting, thinking that you're pretty good. It's self-righteous. But it also manifests as pride in despair. Pride and despair. You realize, oh, I can't do this. And you just kind of give up and sink into a pool of nihilism. You think, well, it doesn't matter anyways, because I can't do it. And that's ultimately the same pride that the arrogant, the boastful has. It's just a different manifestation of it. And that's contrasted by Christ's righteousness, by faith. 
And what I, what I would say is the humility of the resurrection. The humility of the resurrection. Christ's righteousness is humbling because it is a realization that we need someone else. We need something else. We can't do this. And so there's a humility of it, but it's not a humility that is dour. It's a humility that's joyful, anticipatory, because we see what the righteousness actually achieves, and that is resurrection. It's something beyond the life and death cycle. Paul talks about this. He says that he died to the law, and it was through the law that that death took place. You see, he had lived by the law, and he had died by the law. He had realized the extent of his sin and his inability to pay, but he had also met Jesus, resurrected from the dead forgave him and equipped him and sent him out because the law brings death but Christ is resurrection now how do you do that that's a great question how do you move from holding on to both ropes to just grabbing one and what you have to do is you have to listen You have to listen for grace. You have to listen to the gospel. You have to look for it. You have to hear it. You have to receive it again and again and again. And in verses 20 and 21, we see the power of the gospel displayed. There's three statements that explain the gospel and one overarching summary of what the gospel is. It starts, it's actually kind of backwards in our, um, in English. The Son of God loved me and gave himself for me. The Son of God loves you and gave himself for you. The Son of God loves you and he gave himself for you. Sinner, self-righteous Jew, wicked Gentile, the Son of God loves you and gave himself for you. Here's what that means. Paul starts using singular pronouns to show that this is real for him. And he wants it to be real For every single person in this Galatian church, the Son of God loves you and gave himself for you. You have been crucified with Christ. What does that mean? Christ was crucified in history on a Roman cross, died on that cross, was buried in the ground, and now Paul is saying, you, me, them were crucified with him. The cross was God's curse on sin. Jesus didn't belong on that cross. 
He had no sin. A perfectly righteous life. He fulfilled the law. He was righteous according to the works of the law. Perfectly fulfilling it. And yet crucified with the curse of sin and death. Paul realized it was my sin that put him there. But he died. And so that means what happened in Jesus' death is that my sin was put to death. The guilt of my sin. The power of my sin to enslave me. The power that it has to keep me continuously being self-righteous, proud, arrogant, hostile to other people, crucified with Christ because the Son of God loves you and gave himself for you. Your sin, when you're trusting in Jesus, is dead, put to death on that cross. death. There's also life. The life that I now live is lived by faith. So there is life after the death of my sin on the cross. The life that I now live, I don't live by works, right? This is him working it out that I'm not going to build back up that structure. I'm not going to go back to that rope. I am living my life by faith, trusting Jesus. You can trust Jesus because he was crucified for you and that you were crucified with him. His death is your death, and so you trust him. And this is, this is how the gospel gets you to let go. Because you look at the crucified Jesus. Can you add anything to his love? Does how you fulfill the law measure up even a little bit to him hanging on that cross for a bunch of people who didn't want him? No. There's nothing you can do to add to the beauty and the power of his love for you poured out on the cross. So what Paul's saying is he's saying, I, everything I am now is trusting because what else can I do? He's embracing God's grace as it comes to him. And then the last part of this is Christ dwelling in me. Christ dwelling in me. I've been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. It's resurrection. You see that? Christ was crucified, and now he's alive. Where is he alive? He's alive in you who are trusting in him. He is giving you resurrection life. And so this, this is astounding. Maybe you've never thought about this before as a Christian. But everything that you do, every component of your sanctification, every good thing that you do in response to God, who is it doing it? Christ, who is alive in you. 
You see, you're not first justified as an act of grace and faith and then sanctified by what you add to God's justification. If we did that, we would be doing what Paul is so upset about here. You'd be going back to works of the law, nullifying this grace. No. You are experiencing the resurrected Christ at work in you. Everything that you do is Christ working in you, showing you how to love, showing you how to serve, showing you how to praise and worship and give, showing you how to be a people set apart for his purposes, showing you how to be his temple, showing you how to demonstrate to the world that God is good and that he has not abandoned his creation, but he has redeemed it and he will perfect it and make all things new. That's what it means that Christ is at work in you. This idea kind of goes back into the exclusivity. This is why the gospel is exclusive, is because in comparison, like trusting something else when you see it correctly makes no sense. It's exclusive not because it's in competition. It's, ex- it's exclusive because it's just undescribably better than everything else. The best metaphor, the best analogy that we have for it is actually marriage. And that's why Paul picks up on that. And he says, oh, our marriage is actually just a tiny little picture. Human marriage is just a tiny picture of the relationship that Christ has to every single person in his church. And what is marriage? It's two people looking at each other the beloved, seeing the love that the other has, dying to all others, and embracing each other, trusting each other. And that's what the church does with Christ. We see him. We see him given for us. We see the love he has for us. And we die to all others. And we live for him. So one of the ways that you know that you're not seeing Jesus properly, that that you may have forgotten the gospel, or part of the gospel is murky, is if you find yourself living by what you can do again. When you find yourself kind of grumbling at other people's sin all the time, irritated. Wow, why are they here? They surely can't, don't belong. They're surely not actually Christians. When you find yourself just living based, instead of on the hope that you have in Christ, based on what you see the works of the flesh, what you see human power able to accomplish, you know that you've lost sight of the real Jesus, the power of the gospel. Because when you see that, you let go of that rope. You embrace him. I'm going to close with this. This is a 
poem slash hymn written by William Cowper. He's an old guy. There's some old language in it. But it just picks up on this perfectly. It picks up on this perfectly, this, this difference between relating to God through the law and through the gospel. So I'm going to read this, and you can just listen and reflect on it. I'll repeat the end twice, just so that you can kind of leave with that in your, in your minds. No strength of nature can suffice to serve the Lord aright, and what she has she misapplies for want of clearer light. How long beneath the law I lay in bondage and distress, I toiled the precept to obey, but toiled without success. Then to abstain from outward sin was, outward sin was more than I could do. Now, if I feel its power within, I feel I hate it too. Then all my servile works were done, a righteousness to raise. Now, freely chosen in the Son, I freely choose his ways. What shall I do was then the word that I may worthier grow. What shall I render to the Lord is my inquiry now. To see the law by Christ fulfilled and hear his pardoning voice changes a slave into a child and duty into choice. To see the law of Christ fulfilled and hear his pardoning voice changes a slave into a child and duty into choice. Please pray with me. Father, we thank you that you have given us your son. And you've given us your son not so that you could love us, but you've given him to us because you love us. Lord, from all eternity, you have put your love on your people. And Lord, we have hard hearts. We're stubborn. We're stiff-necked. We like to think that we can do something to save ourselves. We like to think that what we do in and of ourselves is sufficient. But Lord, you know that when we live that way, we're in bondage. We're enslaved. And that it's miserable. And so, Lord, I know we all have things to confess. We all feel the power of the gospel coming to bear on our lives. God, I ask that you would bring us from life through death and into the resurrection of your Son. God, I ask that your Spirit would be at work in us, showing us the beauty of trusting Jesus. Showing us the power of his life lived for us. That we would not try to live for ourselves anymore. But that we would want to, with every fiber of our being, to live for you. Because Christ is alive in us. We pray all of this in his name. Amen.